Go ahead and take your seat, and as you do so, open your Bible to Acts chapter 20. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, uh, there are some paper Bibles uh, on the table right behind the pole in the center of the sanctuary. Acts chapter 20. We are continuing our study through the book of Acts. Uh, This week we're taking a little more than half of this chapter um, there's so much here in this chapter for us to to understand. So we're going to break it up a little bit, probably come back and do a little bit of overlap and repetition next week as we finish out the chapter. So Acts chapter 20, we're going to read verses 1 through 24. Uh, I like to do that. I think it helps ground us and sort of get us all together as we're working our way through the passage. So Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, after the uproar had ceased... Paul called the disciples to him, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so Peter of Berea accompanied him to Asia, Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room uh, where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down fell on him and embracing him said do not trouble yourselves for his life is in him now when he had come up had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while even till daybreak he departed and they brought the young man in alive and they were not a little comforted Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos there intending to take Paul on board For so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews." And how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house, excuse me, and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. We trust that you will illuminate it to our hearts. You will be our teacher. You will minister to us, God. That you will lead us through this and that you will show us things that we need to see and hear the things that we need to hear as it pertains to our life and our walk and our journey and our race. So Lord, speak for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've been going through this section, we are in the third missionary journey of Paul. And uh, if you don't mind, can you bring up that map, please, that we've been using? So we are in the third missionary journey of Paul, and we are following along with where he's been going. Um, If you can do the other one, please, it's a little bit zoomed in. There you go. Uh, So the, the black line, if you can see it there, is the first missionary journey. The second missionary journey is that purple dotted line, and the third missionary journey is the red line. And so we are on the red line right now, and we are following Paul as he came up around uh, the, the north end there by Thrace and Macedonia, all the way down to the peninsula of Athens and Greece, and then he went all the way back up and kind of doubled back down through the edge of Asia there, um, Asia being what we would call modern-day Turkey. And so we are currently at that point, sort of at the bottom of the Aegean Sea where you see Ephesus, uh, where Paul is sort of traveling back down through that region. And it says here in verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, that's of course the uproar from the previous chapter that had happened in Ephesus. Um, And so Paul is now moving along. He called the disciples to himself, we're told. He embraced them and he departed from Macedonia. One thing I love about Paul, and you'll see this in all of his writings, is his love and concern for people. Notice here as he called the disciples to himself, Paul was not the kind of person, and many of us probably need to learn from this, who just kind of jetted, just kind of, boom, got up and left and didn't say goodbye. Paul was the kind of guy who was going to say goodbye. He was not only going to say goodbye, but he was going to tell you a few things about the Lord. He was going to encourage you. He was going to exhort you to follow the Lord Jesus. And so when he called the disciples to himself and embraced them, he not only gave them instruction and gave them encouragement, but he showed love and affection to them, something that the church at large should, can use a good dose of today, amen? We need, I mean, the church should be, correct me if I'm wrong, the friendliest place on earth. This ought to be the, you, you should be able to walk in the doors of any church and just be received warmly and gladly, even if you are the worst, the most heinous sinner. Why? Because this is how we come to Christ. Jesus loves people. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This should be our attitude toward people. We don't exclude people. 
we are a welcoming church, but what that means is we welcome people in the Spirit. We don't embrace their sin. We don't approve of their sin. We don't approve of their lifestyle. But we welcome them in because all people need to hear the Word of God. All people need to hear the grace of God. Paul loved people. And even if he just met you, I get the sense as I read his writings that he was the kind of guy who would learn your name and not forget it. And he would embrace you. He wouldn't do a handshake. He'd give you a hug. He'd give you a holy kiss. And I would like to encourage all of us to think about that, to be that kind of person like Paul was. So he called the disciples to himself. He embraced them. And then he departed to go to Macedonia. Macedonia, of course, was... Uh, the region, uh, if you go back up into that yellow area, uh, where uh, Philippi was up there, uh, Macedonia, uh, you know, uh, Corinth was up, sort of at the junction of that blue line. And so he's headed back up north. And uh, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. So again, Paul going along, going to those churches, wherever he met believers, just encouraging them in the Lord. And then it says in verse 3, he stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So initially he was going to jump on a ship and sail back over to Syria. You can see that green area on the bottom right. But instead he decided to, on foot, go back up and around. And that's what that red line is sort of doubling back and going up and around through Macedonia. And so Paul is traveling Uh, On land, it must be the Lord had spoken to him, most likely. And he decided to head back up through Macedonia. We do know that in this verse 3 here, I always write these things down in my Bible when I learn about them. Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans during that three-month stay there in Corinth. So you might want to write down there in Acts chapter 20, verse 3, this is where Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans. So verse 4, and so Peter of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. So Paul went up and around, the ship went across, and so they sort of broke up into two traveling groups. You might notice at this point that there's a lot more people traveling with Paul. And I think that's one of the most endearing things about him is that uh, he sort of picked up people as he went along and people might have expressed an interest or maybe he just sort of boldly asked them and said, hey, you're not doing anything. Why don't you come with us? And sort of like Jesus, right? Jesus went through and he would meet people and he would say what? Hey, follow me. And so Paul sort of did the same thing. One of the things we do know from the other epistles as to why, had such, why Paul had such a large company traveling with him is that uh, you may recall earlier in the book of Acts, there was a, a famine going on in Jerusalem. And Paul, of course, being a Jew and although he was from Damascus, sort of considering uh, Jerusalem his second home and being very attached to the Jerusalem church, he was taking up a collection. And so it's likely that all of these people were sort of being sent from the churches where they collected an offering and sort of going as ambassadors back to Jerusalem to share the goodwill both financially and to let them know that there were brothers and sisters in other parts of the world ministering to them and praying for them. And so he's got this this little band of people traveling with him. 
And then they went to Troas. They were waiting for Paul as he came around. And then here in verse 6, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. You may remember earlier going all the way back to uh, Acts chapter 16 where Luke had joined them and the pronouns changed from them to we. Uh, Back when Paul was ministering in Philippi on the second journey, he ended up leaving Luke in Philippi and now once again we see the pronouns changing to we as Luke has uh, collected all of the information and sort of gotten the narrative from people. And uh, back in... uh, Luke Acts 16, um, he was left there by Paul to minister to that church. And so for a couple of years now, he's been there ministering to that church, and he's now rejoined Paul as they're headed back to Jerusalem. So as they're headed back, it says here in verse 7, Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread... Paul was ready to depart the next day. He spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So we're going to see something here in these next couple of verses that the disciples met on the Lord's Day. We know the Lord's Day was the first day of the week, Sunday. That the Lord's people came together. That the Lord's Supper was practiced that the Lord's message, that is, teaching from the Word of God, was done by Paul. And then as we go through this story, we find that the Lord's power was evident as Eutychus had fell dead and was raised up again. So the Lord's day, the Lord's people, the Lord's supper, the Lord's message, and the Lord's power. These are good things to observe about any church and to pray that God would do in our church or whatever church you may be attending. You don't have to meet on the Lord's Day only, but I think it's important that we do because the first day of the week in most societies is sort of setting the tone and the pace for the week. And what better day to start your week than by meeting with the Lord's people on the Lord's Day, partaking of the Lord's Supper, hearing the Lord's message, and hopefully prayerfully experiencing the Lord's power. So Paul was ready to depart, and he was so passionate. He was so filled with joy and with the Word of God and with truth that he wanted to share with these people, that he spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So if he, if he did this from roughly sundown to midnight, it's somewhere between five and six hours. Now, every pastor would like to use this to justify the length of our sermons, but uh, I don't think we can do that. I think we could just observe what Paul was doing here and that he was passionate. He was passionate to depart, or rather to impart to people things that God had imparted to him. There's a passage we like to use in 1 Corinthians 11, often for the time when we come to the the communion table. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says there, that which I received of the Lord is that which I delivered to you. That was in Paul's heart. That was his practice. That's the way he lived. And so here he is, uh, passing back through these areas. Uh, People have gathered together. They're in someone's house that can apparently hold a lot of people. Apparently it was multi-levels. And people were just packed in like sardines. So now it's evening. And they have these lamps out. There may have been oil lamps, but many people believe that these were more like torches. 
And so whether it's an oil lamp or a torch, you know if you've ever had burned one of those that it gives off fumes and there's smoke and all of that. Now you've got a room packed with people, there's body heat. Somebody's going to fall asleep. It's just going to happen. And so as Paul was speaking well into the night, we understand that this man Eutychus, who was sink, uh, sitting in a window, probably trying to get fresh air because he was tired. Remember, this was the end of their work day. Um, they uh, typically in that region, even though the, the Jewish uh, process was that they took Sabbath off, which was from sundown Friday to sundown uh, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, that uh, Sunday or the first day of the week in their culture would have been a work day for them. So they had gotten off of work. They were tired. They were probably hot and sweaty. And they just came straight to this gathering and they were so enthusiastic about hearing what Paul had to say. And we are told that they are all gathered together, a hallmark of the church. Thank God for technology. And if you're listening online this morning, we're grateful that you're here. However, God's desire is that we meet together. And together means in person as much as possible. So Eutychus was in this window. He was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome to the point that as Paul was speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. And certainly we can understand that if he fell out of a third story window, that's a pretty tall fall. So here Eutychus is uh, there to receive the word of the Lord. Instead, falls asleep, falls out the window, and appears to be dead. Uh, there's nothing to be said here really in ter- about falling asleep in church. We all do it. These were certainly uh, extreme circumstances with the lamps and the, the packed-in people and all of that. And I, uh, I am not a person who likes to spiritualize the text or to, to take it and you know, make it mean something else other than what is said. But there was one commentator who I think brought up an excellent point, uh, sort of looking at the, the issue of sleep and, and how we tend to often you know, fall asleep spiritually. And we become distracted from the things of the Lord. And I'll read to you what he said because it touched my heart, it ministered to me. And he said as follows, under, and he, he entitled this little section, How to Stay Awake in Church, not just physically in church, but in general as a part of the body of Christ. And he, he wrote as follows, Each of us should periodically make a personal spiritual assessment. If we have never truly been awake, we must ask the God of grace to help us believe. We must confess our sin and declare our faith in in Jesus Christ and ask Christ to make us brand new, to receive Him as our Savior. Church will then become more alive than we ever imagined. If we are already children of God and our slumber is due to sin in our lives, we must repent. We must do a U-turn. We must allow the joy of Christ to refill us. The joy of worship will then flood our souls. Those of us who suffer the problem of familiarity must consciously and deliberately participate with all of our being in the corporate worship of the church. When we sing a hymn or a song, we should shut everything else out and sing it to God. Singing not only with the mouth, but with the heart and the mind. As others lead us in prayer, we should pray along with them. A spiritual concert. And when we hear the scriptures, we must listen, for we are hearing the very voice of God. 
We must listen to God's word as we would to a love letter, for that is what the Bible is. It is God's love letter to us. If we have been born again from our slumber, if we have confessed our sin, we must consciously, in dependence upon God, wake up to the wonders of worship. Our coming together with other believers should demonstrate that we are awake and alive in Christ. Worship is to be in technicolor, for Christ is with us. That is how we stay awake in church. I love what he wrote there. It's so encouraging. You know, there's a couple of verses, well, really more than a couple, that talk about this issue of just being awake. In Romans chapter 13, verse 12, it says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. In 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Paul wrote these words, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Strong exhortation. Ephesians 5, verse 14, he said, Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The scriptures have much to say about this issue of being spiritually alive and spiritually awake. Well, Eutychus had, of course, fallen asleep. The sleep had overtaken him, the fumes, the the heat, all of that. And in verse 10, but Paul went down, he fell on him and embracing him said, do not trouble yourselves for his life is in him. We wonder, what does it mean when it says Paul fell on him? If the guy's hurt, if he's, if he's half dead or, or even completely dead, uh, he wouldn't fall on him like trip and fall body on body. But we do find perhaps a key to what Paul did or what this means. In the Old Testament, there were two times when people had died. Uh, one time was under the ministry of Elijah. The next time was under the ministry of Elisha. In 1 Kings chapter 17... A widow's son had died, and it says here that Elijah stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and a very similar thing happened almost exactly during the ministry of Elisha. Perhaps this is what Paul did, we don't know, but either way, Paul had compassion on this man. I mean, after all, he was there listening to Paul teach the Word of God, to Paul come and bring a word from the Lord to these people, to these hungry disciples. And and here this man fell out the window. And so Paul went to him, embraced him, and then said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Whether or not he was alive or maybe through Paul, God raised him from the dead. We don't know either way. The fact that he fell out of a three-story window and was still alive is a glorious thing. In verse 11, now when he had come up and, and broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. So Paul taught all this time, probably till midnight. Now he stays up all night talking to anyone who wants to talk. You know, hey, I can sleep later. I'll sleep on the ship. And so he spent this time with whomever would listen to him and fellowshiped with them. And then in verse 12, they brought the young man in alive. And they were not a little comforted, which means, of course, they were excited. They were happy. They were joyful that this man was alive. And then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos and there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot 
Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, and there intent, excuse me, and when we met, when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. For some reason, Paul didn't want to go on the ship, he wanted to walk. The journey by ship was about 30 miles, excuse, yeah, about 30 miles, but the journey on foot was a, a little bit shorter. Maybe Paul wanted to clear his head, we're not sure why he wanted to, to go on this 20 mile walk, but he did. And so Paul went on this walk, and then when he met them, it says, we sailed from there in verse 15, and the next day came opposite Chios. And so you wonder, why did Luke sort of chronicle all this out? Well, I think the reason Luke is doing this is not only tracing where Paul's journey was, but also as he's trying to get back, we're told that he he had just finished the, the, the days of unleavened bread. That's the end of the Feast of of Passover, and we know from Passover to Pentecost is 50 days. And so we're told that Paul was hurrying to get back to Jerusalem. He wanted to, if possible, be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. So he's kind of moving along here at a quick pace, and so we that's what we just heard about here in verses 15, 16, and 17. And as he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost, from Miletus... He sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Ephesus was about 30 miles inland from Miletus. Paul didn't want to go all the way up and all the way back and knew it would take him a much longer period of time. So he sent somebody to go get the elders of the church in Ephesus and to come down to him. And right now we're going to see a little bit of a shift because what's going to happen now, beginning in verse 18... We're going to hear Paul delivering this passionate pastoral message. And you know, all throughout the book of Acts, as we've been following the life and the ministry of Paul since his conversion in chapter 9, what we've been seeing from Paul is this this church planter, this pioneer of the faith, this evangelist, this person who was like a tireless energizer bunny kind of a guy who just never stopped. You knocked him down and he kept getting up. But now as he calls these Ephesian elders to himself, Paul begins to pour out his heart to them. And we see the heart of a pastor here, which is why we're going to spend a little more time next week looking at the back end of what he said. But in verse 18, we're we're sort of moving into this, and it says, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. So what is he saying? You know from the first day that I came, in what manner I lived among you. In other words, you know my example. You know how I lived. And remember in Ephesus, Paul worked during the day. He taught at the school there during the day whenever there was the break, the siesta from 11 a.m. to about 4 p.m. And then after that, he would go back to work. And so Paul is letting them know, you know how I lived. I wasn't there to take money from you. I wasn't there to have you serve me. His heart, his desire, his mind was to be a servant. His desire was to be a blessing to others. He wanted his life to be poured out as a drink offering, which he said later to Timothy at the end of his life. And so he's saying to them, you know how I lived among you. You know my example. You know that I did not do anything to take from you. I came to give. 
We can learn so much from Paul, can't we? He went on to say, I serve the Lord with all humility. How many of us can say that? You know, humility is sort of the absence of pride. It's learning to think of ourselves in the proper context. Humility is a form of strength because we properly understand who we are before God. As we just sang in that song before the message, holy. You see, when we stand before God, we know who we are. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he was... Uh, called into the presence of the Lord, he said he was undone. We know in, in the Scriptures, whenever people have an encounter with, with an, uh, uh, an appearance of Christ, so often they fall down before that person, before that angel, before Jesus himself. And you see, when we truly come in the presence of God, when we get alone with Him in His Word, when we enter wherever we go to church and we worship the Lord, hopefully we are being brought into the presence of God. Our awareness of God, it should be heightened, it should be increased when we're in church, when we're worshiping the Lord. We should be aware of the Lord all the time, don't get me wrong. But when we come together as God's people, there should be this awareness of being Uh, before God and understanding who we are. I'm the created. He's the creator. I'm the one in need. He's the one meeting my need. God is is the, the seeker. We are the receiver of the goodness of God. Paul said he was serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials. Paul was not afraid to show his emotion. He was not afraid to admit that as a man he cried. He had great disappointments. He had emotional hurts. He no doubt had physical scars, but he also had emotional scars. We talked last week in our passage about this man, Alexander, believing him to be the same man that Paul later wrote to Timothy and said, Be wary of Alexander the coppersmith, for he did me much harm. Paul remembering him not because he hated him, but because this man had caused him so much harm physically, emotionally, financially. So Paul saying these things to these elders, calling them together. And, you know, he said these kinds of things all throughout his writings in in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Paul was not egotistical. He he didn't develop the first church of Paul the Apostle. He wasn't cultivating his own following. He was saying, to the degree you see me following Christ, that's what I want you to imitate. Imagine that mindset if everyone in the church of Jesus Christ had that mindset of, I want to follow Jesus so completely and so closely that I could actually say to other peoples, if you imitate me, you're imitating Christ. In the way I think, in the way I speak, in the way I interact with people. Paul was not egotistical. He was humbled. He knew who he was before Christ. Do we know who we are before Christ? He wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also do, uh, pleasing all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. You see, that was what was on Paul's heart. And then in another place he said, when I'm with the Jews, I do as the Jews do. And wherever I am, I just conform to their custom, not because I want to be like them, but because I want to reach them for, the, for Christ. I want to reach them with the gospel. Paul, in saying this here, you know how I've lived among you, he's saying there's nothing in my life that you can call into question. How many of us can say that? There is nothing in my life that if you, if you open those pages, you open that door in the back room, you're not going to find something that's condemning or that's, that's not speaking or befitting of Christ. How, how many of us can say that? This is what it means when it says, Be holy, for I am holy. We need to pray that God would sanctify our lives, my life, your life, as we continue to yield to Him, as we continue to grow, as we continue to be conformed to the image of Christ. Paul was serving the Lord. Our mindset should be serving the Lord. And if you're involved in serving in this church or any other church, Your mindset should be, I'm not serving that ministry or that church. It should be that I'm serving the Lord, and I'm serving the Lord by doing those things. And having that attitude, having that understanding protects us from disappointment. Because people will disappoint us. People always disappoint us, don't they? All the time. And if it hasn't happened yet, I'll disappoint you. Don't trust in me, trust in God. But we should still have that desire in our lives to follow Christ and to allow people to observe our lives. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like, like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. How's our commitment to the Lord? How's your walk with the Lord? Are we like the young man who wrote a love letter to his, his uh, darling and said, My dear, I would climb the highest mountain, swim the wildest stream, cross the burning desert, and die at the stake for you, and I'll see you next Saturday if it's not raining. Commitment serving the Lord means that we will not allow inconveniences and circumstances from serving Him. Paul was committed to serving people by serving God. So Paul, with many tears and trials as a leader, willing to be transparent to let other people know what was going on in his life and you know, not to have this false front of strength but to be real with people, to let them know that he was going through things and that they could pray for him just as he desired to pray for them as well. And in verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house. Paul didn't hold back on anything. He wasn't afraid of what people thought. I don't think Paul was insensitive. But he wasn't afraid to speak to people, to tell them the truth. 
And if he felt that he needed to say something, then he said it. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, if you haven't been writing in your Bible, this is a good time to start. Verse 21, underline that last half. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. I do this because... I love to hear, as I go through the Scriptures, all the different ways that the Gospel is presented. And as we have been reading through the book of Acts, and we've been hearing, you know, starting with the day of Pentecost, and then with all of the other times that the Gospel has been preached, it's always just slightly different, that the core message is the same. And here he says, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Understanding that when we come to Christ, there has to be repentance. Repentance means to change your mind, to change your way of thinking. And it primarily means as we come to Christ in the beginning, to understand that I'm wrong and that He's right. He has what I need. He has forgiveness of sins. I need forgiveness of sins. I can't get that anywhere else but from Jesus Christ Himself. It doesn't come through the church. It doesn't come through an organization. It comes from Jesus Himself. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. One person said repentance is just the sick man acknowledging his illness. It's simply the sinner recognizing his guilt and confessing his need of deliverance. Verse 22, and see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. As Paul is making this journey here, going back as he's meeting people, as he's interacting with people, the Spirit of God is is working through the lives of his people, and he's using people to give him words of knowledge, words of wisdom, words of prophecy. And Paul says, here's what I keep hearing. The Spirit keeps telling me everywhere I go, uh, I don't know what's going to happen when I get there, but that chains and tribulations await me when I get back to Jerusalem. You might say, well, why would you go if you know those things? Because he knew that God was leading him to go to Jerusalem. Notice what he says in verse 20. I go bound in the Spirit. God had compelled him. He had spoken to him. Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem. As he's going, God's saying, and oh, by the way, when you get there, it's going to get tough. It's going to get testy. Things are going to happen. Notice that he says in verse 22, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Do you understand that the fear of the unknown is one of the biggest reasons that there is a counseling industry? He says, I don't know what's going to happen, but basically what he's saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm trusting God. I'm leaning into Him. I'm not going to worry about what might or might not happen. Some of us have a real problem with scenarios, don't we? When something's about to happen, we can just play out in our mind all the worst ways this is going to happen. When my daughter was here a few weeks ago, we were just... We had sort of a daddy-daughter date, and we were talking about these things, and she just kind of went off on, you know, if this is going to happen and that, and, you know, with my kids, different things that are coming up. And I said, you know, why do you go there? Why, why in your mind do you just, like, go to the worst possible outcome? You know how we are with our kids. You know, if they climb up, they're going to fall, like Eutychus, fall out the third window and die. 
We have this fear of the unknown. And we do this in relation to our walk with Christ, don't we? Well, Lord, I'll follow you, but can you just give me the 10-page plan in advance so I can kind of just look through it and see if I really want to do this? I mean, what if I don't want to follow you, Lord, because there's some trouble ahead? You see, we have to trust God no matter what happens. We have to trust God even when we don't know what's going to happen because guess what? How often do you know what's going to happen? Rarely, if ever. Paul knew that God was directing him. That's all he knew. He didn't have the answers, but he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to trust God. One person said, we trust an unknown future to a known God. That's the way we live our lives. You see, I may not know what, I may not know why, but I know who. That's how we live. I don't know what, I know why, but I know who. You may think you know what, and I hope that you know why, but you always know who. This is why over the course of the summer we were encouraging you to read some of the missionary biographies that we had put out on the shelves because when you read the lives of these people, they were very imperfect, just like all of us are. But how they trusted God, how God spoke to them in a similar way that God spoke to Paul, how God led, how God directed, how things went in their lives. There were so many people who suffered, who went to the mission field serving Christ, knowing that they had a clear call. And yet things happen, unknown things happen to them. Some of you may be familiar with the story of the missionary Jim Elliott. Jim and Elizabeth Elliott had gone to... South America to minister to a very remote Indian tribe. This was uh, well, maybe in the 1950s, I believe. And in his uh, biography, someone had wrote that, that he had said this. And I quote, He is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. What's he talking about? Giving up your life. Giving up your will to serve God, to be obedient to him. Didn't Jesus say something very similar? He who desires to to save his life must lose it. You see, our walk of faith must be this kind of walk where we trust God without knowing the outcome without knowing what might happen. David the psalmist wrote in Psalm 16, verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. Listen to verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. What he's saying here is if you have the Lord, it's going to be okay. The Holy Spirit, Paul said, was testifying in every city what was going to happen when, I, when he got to Jerusalem. Paul was willing to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through other people. And I love that about Paul. He's communicating to us in his example that we need to be open to how God might want to minister to us through other people in the body of Christ. But notice in verse 24, he said, 
speaking especially of the the unknown and of what might happen when he gets to Jerusalem, he said, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. How could Paul say, none of these things move me? Paraphrasing, it really doesn't matter what's going to happen when I get to Jerusalem. It's okay that all of these prophecies and whatnot that are coming to me are coming saying the same thing essentially when I get to Jerusalem. Hard things are going to happen. But these things don't move me. Why? They don't cause me to change my course. They don't cause me to do something different. Why? Because, he says, nor do I count my life dear to myself. You see, this is a man who's already died. Not only has he died to himself, remember he wrote to the Corinthians saying, I die daily. But remember in his first journey when he went to to Lystra and Iconium, remember they stoned him, left him for dead, and drug him outside the city? And we believe it was at that point that as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he gave that vision and he, and he said, I know a man in Christ, he's kind of you know hiding a little bit. I know a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body or in the, out of the body, I don't know. But he had this vision. He was taken up into heaven and he saw glorious things of which he could not speak. We believe that that's probably the point where Paul had that vision when he was stoned to death and you know there's debate was he fully dead or mostly dead who knows but as we read that story all the way back in the beginning in Acts 14 we find that as the disciples came out and they gathered around Paul his lifeless body laying there they were standing around him probably praying for him and the Lord raised him up just like God did for Eutychus and as Paul probably Died probably had that out-of-body experience. That's probably the experience there in 2 Corinthians 12. How do you speak to a man who's already died? And to say, this is, this is going to be that way, and that, that's going to get tough. And Paul's like, what have I been through that hasn't treated me in this way? You, you know, in 2 Corinthians 11, just leading up to that, he says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. That's written before his journey to Rome where he's shipwrecked. So he's been shipwrecked other times. And he says, in journeys often in perils of waters and perils of robbers and perils of my own countrymen and perils of the Gentiles and perils of the city and perils in the wilderness and perils in the sea and perils among false brethren and weariness and toil and sleeplessness often and hunger and thirst and fastings often and cold and nakedness. And besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for the church as Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians. This well-known verse that we've sold t-shirts on. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. But none of these things move me. Paul had already died. He had died physically most likely. Certainly he had died to himself. And he had learned that as I live for Christ, he said, you know, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. This was the man. He said, I don't count my life dear to myself. None of these things move me. 
And here's the lesson for us. What is the course that God has given to us? Paul's referring to the fact that all the way back in the beginning, his calling, God gave him a mission. God gave him a purpose. God spoke to his life. Now, we may not all be an Apostle Paul or an Apostle Peter, but I believe with all of my heart as I understand the Scriptures that when God saves a person, that we are not saved for no reason. He's laid claim to our lives. We belong to Him. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. We are not free, therefore, to just live however we want and do whatever we want to do. We must seek God. And we must ask Him, like Paul, to lead us, to guide us, to direct us. Does that mean God might call me to go on the mission field and do something crazy? It might. It also might mean that right where you are, God calls you to serve Him, doing what you're doing now, but with a sanctified heart, a sanctified mind. And we think differently, and I'll give you an illustration of this in my own neighborhood, but my neighbor directly across the street from me annoys me to no end, I'm just confessing. They have parties probably almost every weekend. Not, you know, rowdy out in the street, you know, that kind of thing. But I look out the window sometimes when I'm I'm studying or I'm going to bed, and I'm just like... What is going on over there? It's, you know, 11.30, you know. And I, and I, this morning as I, I was up, I happened to be up at 3 a.m. I got up to get a drink of water or whatever. Looked out the window. There they are, still going strong. And I, I admit in my heart I was judging them. And in that moment, the Lord just spoke to me and said, Why don't you pray for their salvation? Why, aren't you concerned? They're, they're, they're in the world. They're lost. They need Christ. We all do this, don't we? I don't count my life dear to myself. The problem is that I do. I do count my life dear to myself. I care, care too much about myself. We care too much about ourselves. Paul is holding this forth as an example. We need to care less about ourselves and more about the things of God. Jesus said... If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, another verse many people have memorized and underlined in their Bibles. You should do so if it's not already underlined. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul was given over to Christ. My life's not dear to me. None of these things move me. And that means that he had to, as he wrote in Romans 11, that you should reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we can do that, if we can embrace that, if we can understand that, then we understand that complaining is not allowed with God. So it's our favorite pastime. It's one of the reasons I quit watching the news. doesn't matter what channel you watch, they're all complaining about someone or something. It's not good for your soul. Philippians 2, Paul said, Do all things without uh, complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what Paul said about himself. You know how I lived among you. 
Paul wrote in Colossians 3, bearing with one another, forgiving with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. So even when we think we're just and have a right to have a complaint against someone, Jesus removes that thorn from our paw and says, did I forgive you? Are you a worse or better sinner than they are? Didn't I die for their sin just like I died for your sin? Therefore, when you feel like holding something against another, you need to forgive because I've forgiven you. Isn't this what so many of the parables were about? And Paul says, So that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was determined to finish the course, no matter what the cost was to him personally. One commentator wrote this, A man or a woman who never does anything except what can be done easily will never do anything at all. See, it's not supposed to be easy. But it is supposed to be filled with the Lord. You see, we overcome because of Him. Faith, perseverance, trusting in Jesus, walking close to Him, serving God. It's not a matter of convenience. It's a matter of perseverance. It's a matter of commitment to the Lord. Paul later wrote to Timothy, and I already alluded to this, but you, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Someone, looking at Paul's missionary journeys, calculated, and I don't know if this is accurate, uh, that Paul had traveled 5,580 miles by land, 6,670 miles by sea, totaling 12,350 miles in these three journeys that we're looking at up on the map. Someone said that he had evangelized over 1,500 square miles. I find that a little low, probably given the amount of territory that he covered. I mean, the state of New Hampshire is way bigger than 1,500 miles, and this is one of the smallest states. And look at the territory that Paul covered. The point is that what Paul did, he considered that his life was worth dying for. In the words of Spurgeon, he preached a gospel worth dying for. It's a worthy challenge to any preacher, to any person. Is the gospel that we preach worth dying for? The gospel of moral reform, not worth dying for. The gospel of save yourself through good works, nope. The gospel of social action and improvement, not worth dying for. The gospel of religious traditions, dead works. The gospel of merely having spiritual conversations with people, not the gospel. The gospel of mystical mumbo-jumbo, where you don't know what they're saying, not worth dying for. The gospel seeking the church of true coolness and hipness. If you notice today, if you work at things online, everybody has a beard and tattoos. I feel out of place. I thought about getting one on vacation, but I'd probably get in trouble. The gospel of self-esteem. It's not the gospel. We just talked about dying to yourself. The gospel of ecological salvation. 
The gospel of political correctness? The gospel of the emergent church or feeling good about yourself and only telling you things that are good but never talking about sin, never talking about repentance? That's not the gospel. Yet there used to be a gospel in the world which consisted of facts which Christians never questioned. There was once in the church a gospel which believers hugged to their hearts as if it were their soul's life. There used to be a gospel in the world, speaking of the gospel of the scriptures, which provoked enthusiasm and commanded sacrifice. Tens of thousands of people have met together to hear this gospel at the peril of their lives. Uh, To the teeth of tyrants, men have proclaimed this gospel and they have suffered the loss of all things and gone to prison and even died singing psalms all the while. Is there not such a gospel remaining? Charles Spurgeon said. You see, what, what is it that moves you? Paul said, none of this moves me. What is it that moves you? What is it that moves me? What stops us or slows us down? I find so often it's a pebble in the road. You know the little pebble you get in your shoe sometimes and you just you get to pull over and stop and get it out? Is it a bump in the road? What causes you to make a change in your life? That's what he's talking about when he says none of these things move me. They're not causing me to change my course. What is it that causes you in faith to start something or to stop something? What is it that causes you and me to begin to live differently? What is it that causes us to repent? You see, don't be like Jonah, whom the Lord had spoken to so clearly. And Jonah said, nope, not for me. And he went a thousand miles in the other direction, got on a ship, was headed away from the, plan, the purpose and the plan of God. And what did God do in his life? What extreme circumstances did God have to go to to turn him around? They threw him overboard. A big fish, presumably a whale, swallowed him. If you look at this on a map, it's fascinating. Swam all the way around, I don't even know how many thousands of miles, and barfed him up on the beach of the very place God wanted him to go. It's an amazing story. Four little chapters, go read it. Don't read it right before bed or before dinner, but, you know. But don't be like Jonah. Don't make God have to go to extreme situations to put a roadblock in your life. Remember Balaam and his donkey? You won't listen to the voice of the Lord, so maybe you'll listen to the voice of a talking donkey. What is it that the race is that God has set before you? Again, he's called us all for a purpose, for a reason. He didn't just give you your fire insurance policy from hell. He redeemed us. We belong to him. What is the race that God has set before you? Do you not know that all those who run, run in the race? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others that I myself should become Disqualified? Am I even in the race? Am I even in the game? So often we let fear hold us back. Don't let fear cause you to make those kinds of decisions. Fear is the opposite of faith. If you make decisions based on fear, you will not be following God. Have you seriously prayed about what the purpose of your life is? 
Are you sure that the path you are on right now is the path that God has for for you? If not, maybe a change is in order. God created this for himself. There's an old hymn that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. Finally, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I was thinking about this, It's a series of questions and answers, and it was designed just to help us kind of remember the things about God and about the Scriptures. The question is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of my life? And at a very high level and in a very grand way, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I submit to you that if we, in our lives, purpose to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever... That's the first step on that journey of walking the path that God has for us. None of these things move me. Can we be like Paul? Can we embrace that? Can we say that about our lives? Are we following the Lord or are we following some dream? Are we just doing what we want to do? Or have we actually prayed about it and said, Lord, do I have your blessing to do this in my life? I'd like to suggest that you should do that. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. You're so good to us. God, we bless you. I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us to confirm to us or perhaps to reveal to us that which you have saved us for. Lord, you've given us gifts, not just talents and abilities, but spiritual gifts that you want us to understand and that you want us to use for your glory. So Lord, help us. Help us to surrender. Help us to repent. Help us to die to ourselves that we might be alive to you. Thank you, Lord. You've given us a lot to think about this morning. We love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.